Good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone. I get the opportunity to open up God's Word if you're visiting with us this morning. It's so good to have you. Uh, you're catching us as we're starting a new book. Uh, last Sunday, Paul... Uh, that's the third time I've done that. Where is Todd? I've, I keep calling him Paul. He's good, but he's not that good. All right. Last week, uh, Todd finished up uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, with us, and this morning we're, we're going to be beginning the second letter to the Thessalonians. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there. We'll be looking at the first five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, if you need a Bible, we got some ushers would love to put one in your hand, and uh, they can help you uh, find your spot in there as well, or uh, a lot of the verses will be up here on the slide as well. But as we get going in this book, what I want to do is I want to take a couple minutes off the front end just to kind of explain the, the situation, what was going on as Paul wrote this letter. Now, last week, as, as Todd wrapped up 1 Thessalonians, you know, he was looking at Paul's instructions in chapter 5 of that letter regarding prophecy. And if you hadn't, didn't get a chance to catch that message, it was, it was great. Great explanation of this string of commands that Paul gives. Don't despise prophecy, but don't just accept it wholesale. He says, test everything. Hold fast to what's good, and then to abstain from every form of evil. And I love how Todd kind of segued into this second letter by showing us that really in 2 Thessalonians, this is where Paul gives us a demonstration of how to do exactly that. Test prophecy. Hold fast to what's good and reject or abstain from all that's evil. As best as we can tell, this second letter to the Thessalonians was probably written within about a year of the first one during the same kind of year and a half period of time that Paul and Silas and Timothy are in the city of Corinth. We see this like in the first two verses of this book. Again, Paul, Silvanus, or it's just a, a, a more of a Latin way of saying Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, same three authors writing to the same church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Same three authors, same group of people that they're writing to. But between the first letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians and this second one, it seems that there was another letter that showed up in Thessalonica claiming to be, to be from Paul and the guys, but contradicting what they wrote in the first letter. In particular, contradicting what they wrote about the day of the Lord. And so what likely happened that occasioned the writing of this letter was that the Thessalonians themselves wrote a letter to Paul and the guys in Corinth basically saying, what gives? Like on the one hand, okay, you wrote us in that first letter saying that the day of the Lord would come like a thief on the night in the night for unbelievers. They wouldn't be ready for it. Sudden destruction would come upon them. They wouldn't escape. But you told us that we wouldn't be surprised by it. Because we have now been given this new life in Christ. We are children of that day. But then we get this second letter from you that now says the day of the Lord happened and we missed it. How do we make sense of this? And not only that, here's the more important question. What does this mean for us and our salvation? If we've missed the day of the Lord, if it surprised us, what does that mean? Are, are, we're, are we not truly followers of Jesus? Did we miss this somehow? You can see how this would be really upsetting, can't you? 
So what Paul and the guys do here in this second letter is they write this, this shorter letter to address that very confusion. You see that like in the beginning of chapter 2 where, where they, they say very clearly, do not be deceived. We, we didn't write that other letter that came. As a matter of fact, at the very end of the letter, Paul makes sure to, to sign it with his own hand and then say, hey, look, this is my handwriting. This is my autograph. This is the mark of genuineness in any letter that comes from me. Look for my John Hancock. This is how you know it's from me. We didn't write that first letter. You haven't missed the day of the Lord. And kind of the whole point of the letter is to say, not only did you not miss it, but there's these certain things that have to happen before Jesus comes again. And those haven't happened yet. So again, to reassure you, you didn't miss it. We'll get more into those details about the return of Jesus and the events that proceeded over the next couple of weeks. But now what I wanna do is see how Paul begins this letter. How does he begin to correct them or to help them tell the difference between true prophecy and false prophecy like in that letter? And look what he says in verse three. He says to them, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. And again, just to remember that word brothers in, in, in Greek, it encompasses both men and women. Brothers and sisters is probably a better way to put it in English. We give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters. It's right for us to do this. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. He starts out here and he says, we give thanks. We ought always to do it. In many ways, what Paul's doing here is he's, he's practicing what he preached in the first letter. Remember when we were looking in chapter five and he gave these commands about how when the church is gathered together, you ought always to be rejoicing, always to be praying, giving thanks in all circumstances. And so Paul and the guys are saying, this is not only something that we told you to do, this is what we are doing. He says, we ought always to do that. Bob pointed out to us when we were in 1 Thessalonians 4 that that word ought means obligation or duty. This is the right way for us to respond with regular, ongoing thanksgiving. Not only thanksgiving to God, he says, but see what he says there in verse 4? We thank God for you and we boast about you to the other churches. Not like a, boat, like a weird sort of like competitive boasting, like look how much better they are than you guys. This is like a proud dad sharing great family news amongst his children. It's like, have you, have you heard what's going on with your brothers and sisters in Thessalonica? Man, they're taking it on the chin. They are facing a lot of opposition from those around them who don't believe, but they're, they're hanging in there. They're standing their ground. They're supporting each other. They're loving each other. They're encouraging each other to keep going, to keep trusting in Jesus in spite of the opposition. And I'm so proud of them. I thank God and I boast about them. Even more so, think about how these words would have landed on the Thessalonians. We're gonna find out in the next couple of verses that the afflictions that they're enduring, the persecution comes from unbelievers in their community that are either violently attacking them or just ostracizing, shunning them. On the one hand, in their own neighborhood, the Thessalonian believers are being treated as shameful and rejected and canceled, as we would say. So he's saying to them, while you may have lost face, lost reputation in your community, you have a new family. You have a new family in God, and you have an honorable reputation in that family. 
I'm boasting about, I'm building your reputation, letting your brothers and sisters in other places know about what God is doing in the midst of you. And in particular, look at what he says. This is what I see God doing. This is why I'm thanking God and boasting about you. Your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. I love that, how specific that is. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It wasn't just a few shining examples, a few like high level people who demonstrated love. And so everybody kind of got to share in that reputation. There was no dead weight on this team, right? This is the group project in high school where everybody did their part. There was no one who just kind of skated through hoping that everybody else would cover for them. Every one of you is growing in love for one another. In many ways, he's picking up on what he told them to do in the first letter. He said, you don't need me to write to you about brotherly love. I'm just telling you, keep going with that. And so he's writing them again to say, you're on the right track. You're growing in that love for one another. Even though their circumstances hadn't gotten any easier. He says, I'm boasting about your steadfastness and faith in all the persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. They're still suffering. In many ways, it seems the the situation has gotten worse. We talked in the first letter as we went through it that in some ways, it seems that Paul wrote that letter kind of in the midst of maybe a lull in the persecution that the Thessalonian believers were experiencing. So we likened 1 Thessalonians almost to like a a, a halftime pep talk that a coach gives to his team. All right, come on in, catch your breath, get some water. And while you do that, let's review the first half. Here's what went well. Here's what didn't. Here's what we need to focus on in the second half, right? So that's kind of the way that 1 Thessalonians landed was that kind of halftime pep talk. 2 Thessalonians is almost like the coach calling a huddle during timeout during the second half. Saying, okay, you're in the midst of the game. The persecution is ramped up. The trials have increased, but here's what I see. While the suffering is increased, your love has increased. In the midst of that, your faith has increased. You're getting pressed down by the, the, the community around you, and you're standing up under it. That's the amazing thing. I love that idea. It's, it's, it's really cool to see the way that the start of 2 Thessalonians echoes what Paul said at the start of 1 Thessalonians. Remember this in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians when Todd took us through these really cool phrases of how, God, how Paul was thanking God, remembering their work produced by faith, their labor produced by love, their steadfastness produced by hope. Ooh, faith, love, steadfastness. Same thing he says here at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. He's continuing the story. Your faith is increasing. Your love is increasing. He doesn't mention hope here, but he does mention what that hope produced, this steadfastness, this endurance, this ability to stand up under what they were dealing with. Those are all different ways of translating this Greek word. I'm going to geek out on Greek for about 10 seconds with you. It's pretty cool. That Greek word for steadfastness is the Greek word hupomone. It's a combination of two words, hupo, which means under, and mone, which means to remain. Remain under. I am boasting um, in the other churches about the way that you are remaining under the persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. Think about that for a second. 
The idea is that there's a weight that you're carrying, a hard situation, a trial, and rather than seeking to get out from under that weight to escape the situation, which is what we normally want to do, instead you remain under it. You endure. Why do you think that it was so important for Paul to start this letter like this? By assuring the Thessalonians that they're on the right track in their love, in their faith, in their endurance. Again, because the suffering has ramped up again. And in the midst of the difficulties getting more difficult, this other letter comes in with a prophetic word supposedly from Paul saying that the day of the Lord has already come and they missed it and it's bringing swift destruction on those who don't believe and you can see how easily they could connect those two dots. We're suffering worse than before. This letter says the day of the Lord came bringing swift destruction. Is that what we're experiencing? Were we never truly followers of Jesus? Is this God's punishment upon us? I mean, gosh, think about our own lives when we go through difficulty. Even without a false prophetic message, it's easy in times of suffering to wonder if God is punishing us. Is this because of something I did in my past? Is it because I'm out of line in some area of my life and I don't know it right now? Or even if you're not wondering if God's punishing, you're you're starting to doubt God's goodness or God's power. Is, Is evil winning Is God able to carry us through this situation? Has he lost sight of us? We see that in the Psalms even, right? As David is running from Saul or fleeing from different enemies, Lord, have you forgotten me? Where are you? Is God powerful enough to hold on to us in the midst of suffering? Or maybe even sometimes what we do is we say, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna set my hope. I'm gonna fix my focus on the light at the end of the tunnel whenever this situation will be over. I wanna find a way out of it. I wanna just wait for it to be over. And yet Paul says, here's what I'm boasting about. You're remaining under it. You're standing up in the midst of that suffering. It would be so easy with a surprise prophecy saying, you missed it. This is God's punishment upon you to lose heart, to despair, to say, forget it, this whole following Jesus thing, it just ain't worth it. And so the first way that Paul writes to them to help them discern truth from error is by encouraging them, you're on the right track in the midst of the suffering. While the suffering has increased, your love has increased. Your faith has increased. You're learning perseverance. And in verse five, Paul says that on the one hand, everything that you're experiencing, no, it is not punishment from God, but it is evidence of God's judgment. Take a look at this. Look at verse five. He says this, all this that you're experiencing, the love, the faith, the persecutions, the endurance, all of this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. This is evidence of God's judgment, not the final judgment of the ultimate day of the Lord, but I love that idea of evidence. He's saying everything that you're you're experiencing and going through is a body of evidence that is already being collected and compiled on your behalf. As we keep going through 2 Thessalonians over the next several weeks, 
we're going to find out that there are two aspects to God's judgment. And this, we have to talk about this for a second, because I do think that phrase, the judgment of God, that's intimidating. And in many ways it should be, but maybe not for all the same reasons that we think. You see, I think when we see that phrase, God's judgment, our minds typically go to a negative place. Judgment being a bad thing, punishment. But we're going to see very clearly in this letter that there are two sides to God's judgment, like two sides of one coin. There is a positive side of God's judgment of, of the rewarding or vindicating, proving as right those who trust in him. In the end, when Jesus returns, those who trust in Jesus will not have to wonder if we were on the right side of history after all. We will be vindicated on that day. That's the positive side. And there is also the negative side of, of retribution, of punishment, of destruction for those who persist in their rebellion against God. We tend to only think of the negative side when we think of God's judgment, but we're going to see in this letter that both sides, the positive and the negative, are equally important for our understanding of God's judgment. And I would say this, both sides, the positive and the negative, are equally righteous because the God who judges is righteous. But here in verse five, we see Paul starts with the positive side of God's justice here. Speaking of how the Thessalonians' faith and love and perseverance are this body of evidence that they will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God because he says, that's what you're suffering for already. Next week, as we look at the rest of 2 Thessalonians 1, we're going to see how basically what Paul does is he takes that coin and he flips it. And back and forth in the rest of this passage, we see positive, negative, positive, negative. The destruction that's coming, but the glory that's coming. The affliction that's coming to those who afflict God's people and the comfort coming to God's people. He's going to show us both sides of the coin. They'll be on full display. But what I want to do in the rest of our time this morning is really just focus in on this question. What does it mean to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? I want to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. But what does that mean? What does that look like? To answer that question, we need to start by just looking at what does that phrase, kingdom of God, mean? And again, this is a place that's helpful for us to stop and check our, our, the, what we associate with a word like kingdom. I mean, I think through the influence of how many Disney movies you see the little boo go over the castle at the beginning. And that's what we think of as a kingdom. It's the beautiful castle the king lives in. Or it's, it's Simba sitting with his dad, Mufasa. And Mufasa saying, everything that the light touches, this is our realm, right? We think of it as the area, the realm, the territory that a king rules over. There's a New Testament scholar, he's with Jesus now, but he taught here in Southern California back in the 50s, a guy named George Ladd. And he wrote extensively on this idea of the kingdom of God and what it means in scripture. And he says that basically, the kingdom doesn't refer to the territory that a king rules over, but to the rule of a king itself, to his right to rule and to his exercise of that rule. Here's the way that he defined the kingdom of God. He said that the kingdom of God is basically the rule of God. It is God's reign, the divine sovereignty in action, 
Not just the idea that God is king or that it's right for God to be king, but God exercising his rule in his world. That's what the kingdom of God means. Not primarily the place that we want to go to or a place that we're waiting for God to bring here. We're talking about God ruling as king, putting his rule into action. Now, in many ways, this should be kind of like a simple Sunday school answer. Who's king over everything? God. But we also see clearly in scripture that though God is the rightful king over everything as creator and sustainer of all that is, not everything in God's, that God has created submits to his rule. Specifically, we see from the very beginning of scripture, there is this serpent, this one later called Satan, the adversary, who's like the chief rebel against God who led a host of other spiritual beings known as demons in rebellion against God. And then in that scene there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, led the first man and woman into rebellion against God. And whether you know it or not, that's the family we all have been born into. We've been born into the rebellious family of Adam and Eve. And so each one of us come into life already in rebellion against God who has the right to rule. 1 John 5.19 says in very clear terms that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the way that all of us, even those of us who were followers of Jesus before God gave us new life through Jesus, were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were born on Satan's side of this, context, uh, this contest between God's rule and Satan's rule. Jesus himself, like in John 12, speaks of Satan as the ruler of this world. But here's the good news. When Jesus speaks in John 12, calling Satan the ruler of this world, it's because here's what he says. It's time for the ruler of this world to be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So when we think about this idea of the rule of God, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's talking about God exercising his rule in spite of those who oppose him and ultimately in victory over those who oppose him. The kingdom of God is the statement that God alone has the right to rule and he will exercise his good rule over all that he's created. He will restore his creation he will reconcile people by bringing them back under his good rule as king, even as he acts in judgment to defeat Satan and all those who persist in rebellion against God. That's what the kingdom of God is. And it's a big deal. Many commentators, and I tend to believe, uh, agree with them, they say that this idea of the kingdom, the rule of God, is the, is the central theme of the Bible. The central theme of the biblical story. It's all about God exerting his good rule to defeat those who oppose him and to redeem his creation. So this is an important thing for us to wrap our minds around. And I love the way that when Jesus steps on the scene in Mark chapter one to begin his ministry, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't waste any time. From the very beginning, he announces exactly what he has come to do. Look at the way it says this in Mark 1, 14. 
After John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. And what is that good news? It's time. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom, the good rule of God is at hand. It's here in me. I'm king. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. I'm here to bring God's good rule, to bring his victory over evil, to bring the restoration of all creation. And in response to that good news, Jesus, the king, says there's two things that we ought to do in response. Repent and believe in the, good, in the gospel, in this good news. He says, repent, turn. Not just a change of direction, but a change of mind, and even more so, a change of allegiance. He says, you must repent, turn, change your allegiance because you have rebelled against God as king. You were born as an enemy, a usurper, because that's the sinful human family you were born into. All humans are born into that family. But Jesus says, I have come with the terms of peace, with the way that you might be brought back under the good rule of God, be forgiven and pardoned of your rebellion, to be restored and rescued and adopted back into God's family. But you must repent. You must change your allegiance, whether that allegiance, that loyalty is to yourself as captain of your own fate whether that allegiance is to Caesar or to your country or your political party, your family, your friend group, whatever it may be, Jesus says, repent and believe that I am your rightful king. Confess me as king, follow me as king, share the good news of my good rule with others. But if you don't, if you don't turn and change your allegiance and believe in Jesus as king, Jesus is still king, amen? He will exercise his right to rule even over those who oppose him. Every knee will bow before Jesus, as Paul says in Philippians 2, whether that is in worship or in defeat. This is why we keep sharing this good news of Jesus as king and calling to repent and believe. But here's the point. The good news that we share, this gospel of the kingdom, the good rule of God that we share, it's not just the message that Jesus is king. It's also the message of how he demonstrated his authority as king. How did Jesus, what kind of a king is Jesus? How does he bring his good rule with just sheer power and domination? No. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He demonstrated his rule through humble service. He taught truth. He not only called his followers to love their enemies, he loved his enemies even to the point of death on the cross. We often teach the miracles of Jesus to kids as demonstrations, yes, of Jesus's power, as of his divinity, the fact that he is God. But when you set Jesus's miracles in the context of this gospel of the good rule of Jesus, do you see every one of Jesus's miracles as a declaration, I rule. I rule over sickness. I rule over death. 
I rule over the wind and the waves. When Jesus delivered people from oppression by evil spirits, it was a demonstration that even the rebellious spirits have to listen to Jesus. He is king. He showed that his rule brings life and freedom to those who follow him. And yet, what do we see in the story of Jesus? Those in positions of power, those directly threatened by Jesus' claim to be God's king, they rejected him. They even went so far as to say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. We would rather give our allegiance to the Roman emperor than to this one who claims to be our Messiah. They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. They killed him. They nailed him to a cross, exposed him shamefully until he breathed his last. And yet the amazing turn, the beautiful mystery of the gospel is the very act that looked like the defeat of Jesus as king was his victory, amen? That on the cross, Paul says in Colossians 1, Jesus exposed the rulers and authorities to open shame and triumphed over them by the very act of laying down his life. It's amazing. This is the king of the universe laying down his life for people even as we were still rebels against his rule. Not only is his death the defeat of Satan's sin and death, but especially his resurrection. Three days later when he rose from that tomb, he showed that decisive power that he has even over death itself. Then he ascended to the right hand of God where he sits now at the right hand of God. And it says in Ephesians that all things are being put under his feet, which is basically just an ancient way of saying Jesus rules as king over all. Amen? That's the already of this idea of the kingdom, the rule of God. Jesus has already won. He has exerted his good rule against those who oppose him. As Jesus himself says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has already been given to him. But what we have not yet seen is the fullness of his kingly rule. But we will. We will see the fullness of the good rule of Jesus. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna skip us forward briefly to the end of the biblical story. In Revelation chapter 11, there's this beautiful, songs have been written about this passage because it's so good. In Revelation 11, here's that point where we see the fullness of God's rule come. Here's what it says. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. All other rule that stood against Jesus is gone. He will reign forever and ever. And then the response of these 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces in worship to God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. You are putting your rule into action. The nations raged against you. 
language from Psalm chapter two, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both great or both, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is the moment we are waiting for. What a day that will be when we hear the voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world is, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. What a beautiful moment there in Handel's Messiah. Oh my gosh, when you just, you, you hear the music, you hear the choir and they say it over and over and over again and say, yes, come Lord Jesus, I wanna see that. But again, do you see the two sides of the coin of God's judgment here in this passage? Both the destruction that comes to those who oppose God and the rewarding of his saints, those who feared his name, whether small or great. We'll get more into this two-sided nature next week. But again, we started out saying, what does it mean to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God? And we had to take this journey together for a few minutes to say, what is that kingdom all about? It is the good rule of God exercised against all who oppose him, ultimately bringing victory and wholeness and renewal to all creation. This is a big deal, amen? Do you want to be considered worthy of that kingdom? That's what Paul says back here in chapter, in Thessalonians 1, verse 5. He says of the Thessalonians, take heart. This idea of the kingdom, the good rule of God, that's what you're already suffering for. Right now, what's causing the hardship in your life is your belief that in the midst of the broken, rebellious kingdoms of this world, in the person of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, the good rule of God has come and our king is coming again and he will bring destruction to his enemies and salvation to all who turn and trust in him and he will reign forever and ever. That's what you're suffering for. But not only are they suffering for God's kingdom, but I think the, the, the heart of the encouragement that Paul brings here is that the way that they are persevering in the midst of their trials and even flourishing, growing in faith and love is the evidence that they will be judged as worthy of God's kingdom when it comes in his fullness. Why? Because they're already demonstrating by their lives that they're learning to follow Jesus as king. They're already living under the good rule of God. Not perfectly, but increasingly. These, these lifelong learners. In fact, it's interesting. The way that Paul describes the Thessalonians in this passage is, is really, really similar to one of Jesus' most famous parables about the kingdom of God. It's called the parable of the sower. Are you familiar with that one? If not, no pressure. Let me sum it up for you real quick. Jesus tells a story illustrating what the, kingdom of, the coming of the kingdom of God will, is like in his ministry. And he says it's like a sower or a farmer who goes out and he scatters seed. He's planting. And as he scatters the seed, some of it fell along the path. And then the birds came and ate it. It never grew because it got eaten up by birds. Some fell on rocky ground and, and they sprouted up quickly, but then the sun rose and the plants withered because there wasn't much soil. 
And he says, some fell among the thorns. And they, they grew up a little bit, but then all the other thorns and bushes around it choked them out and they didn't become fruitful. But, and he says, some of the seed fell on good soil, which then grew and produced a crop that was sometimes 30 or 60 or even 100 times more than the amount of seeds that were planted. And a little bit later, he, he explains what this whole picture of throwing out seed in different places, what it means. And here's what he says in Matthew 13. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, oh, ding, 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 clue in. When anyone hears this message that the good rule of God is here in me, in Jesus, and does not understand it, the evil one, that ruler of the world, he comes and snatches away what had been sown in his heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures just for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. Those two words that I highlighted there, tribulation or persecution, it's the exact same Greek words that Paul used here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to refer to the tribulation and persecution that the believers in Thessalonica are persevering, standing up under. And just like here in, in Jesus' parable, Paul makes it clear that the persecution that they're suffering is on account of this message of Jesus as king. But here's the remarkable thing. Basically, he, he sets it up to say, hey, everything about your situation looks like the rocky soil, except this, you're not withering. When the sun of suffering rises, you're standing up under it. Not only is enduring, but you're fruitful. You're growing in love. You're growing in faith. He's saying you're experiencing what the rocky soil experienced, but you're showing by your life you're the good soil. I love the way in Luke's account of this same parable, the way that he, he records Jesus' words about what the good soil means. Look what he says here in Luke 8.15. As for that, the seed that was in the good soil... They are those who, upon hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That word patience there, it's the same hupomone. That they, they bear fruit while remaining under the difficulties and trials of life. And Paul's saying, again, this is what I see in you guys. You're not off track. You haven't missed the day of the Lord. Look at what's happening. You're growing in love. You're growing in faith. Even as you stand up under your persecutions, you're bearing fruit with patience. You're on the right track. The outcome of your lives is evidence that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God because you're already learning to live under God's rule. And Paul's point is this isn't something that you've, you've just worked out in your own strength. Paul says again at the beginning, it is right and proper. It is our duty to thank God always for you because this is his work in your lives. This is God's power at work in you demonstrated in the way that you're standing up under what you're suffering. How encouraging these words must have been for these weary and worried disciples to hear, amen? But what encouragement should we take from these words as we begin our journey in 2 Thessalonians? Let me suggest to you three things by way of application. 
first, this one's probably not super new for those of you that have been around Cornerstone for a while, but again, it's so important that it bears repeating. I want to encourage us from this passage to remember that the gospel of Jesus that we believe and that we share with those around us is not just a message of the forgiveness of our sins. It's not just the message of the hope of eternal life or of heaven when we die, as precious and true as those things are. The gospel that we believe and that we share with those around us is the gospel of the kingdom, the good rule of God, his right to rule and him exercising his rule in spite of and in victory over those who oppose him. The gospel we share is the gospel of Jesus' victory through his death and resurrection. It's the gospel of Jesus' ascension, is his pouring out of the spirit that we read about in Acts 2 to empower us to live new lives. It's the gospel of his promise to return, to bring that final judgment at the day of the Lord. It is the gospel of God's promise to renew all of heaven and earth, to make it our forever home with him forever. That's the big, gigantic, beautiful gospel that we share. God is king, and through Jesus, he is bringing us back under his good rule. And our response to that gospel is not just to believe that Jesus is king, not just to tell others that Jesus is king, but to each day, day by day, learn together how to live under the good rule of Jesus as our king. Amen? This comes back again to this definition of discipleship that we keep repeating here. As the group of disciples here at Cornerstone, we are seeking to follow Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to help one another do the same. This is who we are as a church. We want to live under the good rule of Jesus and make the goodness of his, uh, his rule known to those around us. We don't do it perfectly, but we are passionately committed to being fully devoted followers of Jesus, amen? If you're with us this morning and you're investigating who Jesus is and what it means to follow, follow him, I invite you, keep, keep coming with us. Come with us on this journey. We don't have it all figured out, but again, as one of your elders speaking from my heart for our church, let's not settle for anything less than the gospel of the kingdom, the good rule of God in our lives, amen? That's the first thing. Here's the second one. I wanna remind you of what Paul says back here in verse three. What did he see coming out of the lives of the, of the Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering? He saw that the love of every one of you for one another was increasing. Every one of you increasing in love for every one. If you're a follower of Jesus here at Cornerstone, let me ask you this question. How are you increasing in love for your brothers and sisters sitting around you this morning? Not just in feelings of love. It's clear in scripture that, that the Bible's understanding of love is not warm feelings, not even primarily emotion, though emotion is an important part of it. Love is first and foremost an act of the will. It originates in the heart of God who is good, seeking the good of those upon whom he sets his love. It is an act of the will. So what steps can you take to put your love into action for other brothers and sisters in this church this week? 
to meet a need. Maybe right now, you know, there's a conversation I've been avoiding, either because it's gonna be hard for me or it's gonna be hard for someone else. But man, how do I in love move toward that conversation? Take opportunities to serve. Maybe you're thinking of people within your community group and the discussions guides that we put out each week. You're gonna have some time to discuss and talk about these things together in your group. But maybe for you, this idea of increasing in love means, man, I need to step out and, and, and get involved in a community group to take from a room of 600 some people down to a few families or, or individuals sitting around a living room saying, okay, how do we learn to love one another right there? We would love to help you connect in those ways so that you can demonstrate love for one another. So the first one is, remember, the gospel we believe is the, is the gospel of God's rule, his kingdom. Second, it calls us, every one of us, to love for one another. And the last thing I would say is this. I wanna encourage all of us to seek to grow in this steadfastness that Paul talks about in this passage, to remain under the responsibilities and difficulties we experience in our lives. Now, again, the Thessalonians were clearly experiencing persecution from people who opposed their faith in Jesus. And, and maybe that's what you're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Opposition because of your faith from family members or people at school or at work. But I would also this, say this, that because we live in a broken world and in broken bodies, we all experience trials and afflictions of various kinds. For you, maybe the, 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 the affliction under which you are seeking to stand up under it is more an issue of chronic illness, of financial difficulty, a, a difficult relationship with a spouse or a child or a parent. It could just be seriously just the weariness with the pace or the stress of your work or your school studies. And again, as I said earlier, when we encounter difficulty or trials, it's normal for all of us to want to escape, to find a way out or to just set our hope on I can't wait till this is over. And let me be clear. If you are in a situation where you are being physically or sexually abused by someone, it is good and right to seek help to seek protection, to call the police. I don't want you to misunderstand this idea of steadfastness as thinking that the Bible says you have to stay in an abusive relationship. On the contrary, Romans 13 is clear that part of the reason God has given us human authorities, government officials, as imperfect as they often are, is to punish those who do evil. So if you are in an abusive situation, make use of the protection that God has provided for you. But having said that, again, and the various trials and hardships that we all experience, I wanna remind you that this idea of learning to persevere, to stand up under what God puts in our path, the trials that we experience is one of the most powerful ways that God refines our character and shapes us to be more like Jesus. We read about this in Romans 5 and James 1 and 1 Peter 1. So here's my question to you. Are there any situations in your life right now where you need steadfastness, strength and encouragement to persevere, to endure, to remain up under it? Watch out for the temptation to compare your trials to someone else or even to, to read this passage and go, hey, look, the Thessalonians were getting beat up for their faith, so my issues at work are nothing compared to this. Don't belittle 
what you're going through right now. Because understand this, the point is not to compete or compare with someone else's struggles or trials. The point is to recognize that whatever you're dealing with right now in your life, that is precisely where God is calling you to trust him. To learn from him, to remain under it with the strength that God supplies. And remember this, one of the main ways that God supplies us the strength that we need to remain under the difficulties of life is from one another. So if you need help, ask for it. If you need prayer, ask for it. Don't try to remain under the weight of your life by yourself. I'm gonna ask Billy and the, the worship team to come back up and they're gonna lead us in one more song. And I would just say this, if you, if you need that prayer for encouragement, for steadfastness, I'll be up over here by the prayer room. Some of the other elders and leaders will be there. We would be happy to pray with you this morning. But let's pray and then we'll sing one more song together before we go. Jesus, thank you that you are king. Thank you that you have brought your good rule into our lives through your death and resurrection and your ascension and your pouring out of the spirit. Thank you that the best is yet to come. One day we will see you reign in perfection and glory forever and ever and ever. And we long for that day. Lord, would you inspire us with the perseverance that we need, the love and the faith that we might walk in a manner worthy of your kingdom and thereby make the goodness of your rule known to those around us. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.